Hello, everybody. Welcome back. I'm your co-host, Joe. I'm your co-host, Jesse. And we are truly mental. I am super excited that you all are back listening to us. We uh, put our episode after our hiatus that we took uh, a couple weeks ago, actually. And we got some pretty good feedback. People were expressing gratitude that, uh, you know, that we put an episode out. And so naturally, uh, anytime we do that, then it becomes, well, what are we going to do next? And we just did another nine or 10 day stint in Iowa good old Iowa. Uh, it's freezing cold. <laughs> and I told Jesse when we were traveling over there, actually, I just had this thing that I, it's been kind of stirring around in my head for a while. And so I just asked him one question and then I said, ah, I think this could be our next podcast episode. And what that question was, and we're going to get into it here in a minute, but the, the thing that I was thinking about is in this country, uh, policing is often referred to as a paramilitary organization, both internally and externally. I've heard it throughout my career. A lot of officers will reference this. Some people like with a great amount of pride, sadly. Uh, and then people on the outside will reference uh, policing agencies as paramilitary as well. And so one of the things I was thinking is, as Jesse and I left our profession, as all you all know, uh, to pursue our business that is doing really well, uh, a couple things hit me. One, badges to business, I think is brilliant. And so we should probably do something with that. But two is when we left the police department, we caught a lot of flack. And when we left the Marine Corps, we didn't catch any flack at all. Now, did they want us to reenlist? Absolutely. Did they offer tax-free reenlistment bonus while we were overseas? Absolutely. And we said no to both and it was okay. No one got angry. No one got confused. Nobody was mad at us. And so the simple question after all of that is, what if when we hired police officers in this country, it was on a five-year contract? That was my question to Jesse. And to put him on the spot now, he's, he responded with... Well, there's a lot to consider there, right? <laughs> and having said that, we're going to go through all the things that con to consider this. And most often what we when we do on the road, uh, or I do when we're on the road, is... I always preface a new class with, hey, Joe's going to say some things that are going to challenge your perspective. They may be outrageous. They may be you know, things you never heard or thought of before. But ask for judgments to be reserved until like we've gone through the whole training because you know cops are most often really conservative, closed-minded, and they like to do things the way they've always done things. And any discussion otherwise often uh, gets met with resistance. So that's where we're coming from with this, is this is just opening discussion. And we'll talk about later why we believe this discussion is so important. So these aren't, you know, progressive ideas just for the sake of progressivism or for, you know, knocking police officers. It's just a new way to look at things to con or to consider things. To Joe's point, you know, we did stints in the military. We did our contract and it was always expected that some people choose to make a career out of it and some don't. And, you know, they... There was a few people that, you know, uh, usually senior and less to try to pull you aside and let you know that, well, it's tough out there and, you know, it's a lot easier in here. There wasn't like this mass, um, uh, you know, like Joe said, there wasn't hurt feelings. There wasn't a whole like judgment. shift of, of judgment. And uh, I, I, I think that's interesting you're making that comparison because I hadn't even thought of it um, even as many times as because you have brought it up a few times. Um, so yeah, uh, we joined the military. It's a four-year contract. Some guys do five, depending on how long they're 
their training or, or technical school is. Um, but, you know, we, we did four. We served our country and got out. Now, already I can hear the challenges to this. And there is such a belief that you're not a true police officer until you've done 20, 30, 40 years on. The experience in law enforcement is like a, it's like a gold standard for people. And it's like a, not only bragging rights, but like a symbol of I've been on this long. And that was one of the biggest challenges. I remember being in a, in, in academy training and George Chavez, right? I was a cadet. He's George Chavez. George is up there. You know, I, he's like, I've done 10 years. I've been in 10 years because you guys are nothing. I've done 10. And, and I remember being that's, you know, around the time when I become an instructor, right? At the academy. But he says this and then he says, but he says to people that have been on 15, 20, he's like, I'm nothing. People that are about 30, 40, I'm nothing. Those are the real, uh, the real people. He's like, so you're nobody until you've, you've been on this department for some time. That's always stayed with me, right? It was also a reason why I almost didn't go to the academy because I was like, I got less than 10. I'm coming up on 10, but less than 10, should I be here? So I can already hear that as a, as a closed response. Yeah, and I, I was told specifically that you're a boot until you hit five years. And I'm sure that each agency across the country views it different depending on size. Again, we're considered a mega agency, but there's a, there's a lot of police department disparity uh, from what is a boot? Is it one year? Is it two years? Is it five years? Is it 10 years? And, uh, you know, this is, to me, it's all part of the problem. And my whole thought process behind posing this question was, there are a lot of people that are in this profession way past their, what I would call expiration date, <laughs> where they've just lost the love for it. They've forgotten their why. They're not willing to go back to the reason they did it in the first place. And let's be honest, the job is difficult. And we have people, and this is why to me this conversation is important, because there's a lot of pressure, there's a lot of external influence and pressure being placed on the profession of policing from people who have never done the job. Now, I want to just say, I am not someone that says the only people that have good ideas are the people that have done the thing. That is, I know there's a lot of uh, viral videos going around, around right now about the NFL and some reporter, some female reporter that made a, um, or, or Jeff Garcia, former quarterback Jeff Garcia, slamming this female reporter because she's never thrown a touchdown in the NFL. And so somehow her opinion means nothing. I don't agree with that at all. I think people are entitled to opinions. I think people are entitled uh, to reporting whatever it is that they want to report. When it comes to policing, same thing. Like I, All ideas are welcome, but what I know about the culture of policing is that we're a very closed-off in-group, and uh, they're naturally going to resist change that comes from the outside. And so these ideas have to be formed or supported or created within the agencies. And then they're far more likely to actually be supported. And so what if instead of saying, when you become a cop, you've got to do 30 years, we thought of it as a five-year contract, and then we're going to reassess and it's mutual. The agency gets to evaluate the officer. Like, Hey, it turns out you kind of sucked over the last five years. You've had 12 internal affairs complaints. You were indicted once. You've got six use of force incidents. We are not going to extend your contract and ask you to come back. Or, hey, you're an outstanding officer, you know, officer of the month three times, no citizen complaints. Um, you know, everything's been on the up and up. 
we, in fact, not only do we want to extend you, but now you have some leverage. Do you want to go to a specialty unit? Do you want to, uh, maybe there's some type of promotion or um, the slot for a detective or whatever it is. I mean, all yet to be drawn out, but just thinking about the way we've been doing it has got us to where we are. And that doesn't seem to be acceptable for many people, both internal and external. And so again, this is just the type of stuff that runs around in my head. I throw it out to Jesse and then he actually uh, does something of value with it. Everything you say is of value, man. But that's not to say either, right? Like the military is full of career people. Just because you have a contract doesn't mean like everyone's going to get out, right? There's people that do 40 years and there's generals and sergeant majors and, you know, master sergeants or, you know, whatever you call it in the air force, you know, uh, master chiefs, you know, there, there's, there's people that, that end up doing it. So the same, I believe would happen for a police department. You're absolutely right. And instead of just, uh, it, what I find in a lot of agencies, right. I'm not going to, uh, they're not to say our own that, that we work for effective pause there. But, you know, you, you all see the, the problem children that go up the ranks and they're just shift around and moved and kind of hid. Yeah, yeah. We, if we could get rid of those, I, I think there's a, a lot to be said about that. And, um, I mean, you and I can go on and on about what behavioral problems mean, what, what really is behind uh, these complaints or uh, internal affairs investigations. But uh, you're absolutely right. Yeah. And, and so not that this is like, uh, I'm going to interview Jesse, who's the co-host of the podcast here. And to be fair, I didn't even tell him what um, a lot of these questions were until about 60 seconds before we came on. But I, I kind of want to foster just this organic conversation. And again, I sent him just some printouts of, you know, different research on the, um, the history of policing in America, which also i find super fascinating full disclosure i had no idea i really didn't i i knew parts of it but until i researched things for this episode i had no idea about like the the whole primary duty of policing when it started back in 1636 in boston was like as night watch and then in 1658 in new york and 1700 in philadelphia but it wasn't as crime control it was never about crime control and how like politicized and um, it's like, there's a lot of shaping that this profession has done over the history of it. But as much as you want to tie that in Jesse to like the historical context of how we got where we are, I want to keep just kind of throwing some questions out to you. And then if, if it makes sense to tie it in great, but so let's say now, now imagining if we reimagine the profession of policing um, and we signed police officers up for a five-year contract. So that was step one, but step two, what if we raise the barrier to entry? So do you believe or agree that the barrier to entry into the policing profession is too low, is too laxed? Uh, And now with the recruitment issues, what are your thoughts on that? So here's a, here's that you already, you know, preface the juxtaposition of this is we are in a calamity of personnel, if you will, right? We have the, what, what is the great resignation happening? 2021. We have the great, we have the great resignation within this profession. Mm-hmm. We also have the, just the general view, no matter what your political perspective is, you are viewing this profession as not good. 
Like this is not something that anyone wants to do right now. So when you and I came on, you know, we were competing with thousands of people from the first entry of the process to us getting into the academy. And it was always a competition. Um, now that's not the case. Now people are scrambling to get people in. People are having to change where the agency we worked for over the years that we were on, there was very, very strict policies, everything from tattoos to drug history to, you know, uh, whatever exclusionary rules that were existed, they've little, they've been modified and, and shifted around to kind of accommodate bringing more people in. But moreover, above all of that is that everyone forgets, right? People all talk about policing so generally as if we are one police state, like in South Korea or Israel. And that is not the case. <laughs> the profession in this country is highly decentralized. So to answer your question, yes and no. So one agency may have very specific uh, things they have to get in and they're fabulous uh, standards to hold. And other ones are just saying, hey, uh, you know, if you can read and you can drive, man, hey, take this badge of gun or in some states, they will hire you. We're going to give you this stuff. You got a year to finish the academy, which blows my mind, right? There's a, a lot to unpack here. But what do we know about the brain? Let's start with, I think the first thing you probably, you like to talk about always, Joe, is age, right? So let's talk about age. Like, what do we know about the development of the human brain? And, you know, the the front brain, you know, the brain that's responsible for our logic and executive functioning and high-level thinking, you know, it, it, it doesn't mature and fully develop especially for men till, you know, later in the twenties. So if we're having people, you know, I, I, you know, we're speaking to uh, up in Iowa, they were saying, yeah, one of the academy classes had 18 year olds, right? The agency worked for, I, there was a guy in my class, he was 20, 20 and a half. He made it right on time, 20.5. Um, think about the amount of responsibility, the amount of uh, that we're giving them and to which I hear other people say, right? Like you and Joe, or been a rifle and sent to war at these ages. Absolutely. But I can tell you right now, it did not serve us well. Uh, both of us have mental health diagnosis to, to reflect that too. There's a lot to consider here. Yeah, we certainly were not prepared for it. And just because we did it again, you could argue that that probably was premature as well. And yeah, the prefrontal cortex in men not developed till 26, women 25. And that's something that I've been saying for probably the last two years is universally raising the age requirement. And that that upsets a lot of people because again, there's people that say, well, what about those who do a four year stint in the military? They get out at 22 and they're highly qualified. They're, they're ready for the next uh, transition into their next profession or career. And now they have to wait three years. I don't think that that's a bad thing, especially if they're coming off of a four-year enlistment, especially if there was deployments during that enlistment. There should be some transition time. There should be time to maybe go get yourself educated. And I'm not saying I had this debate uh, with with one of our guys recently about, mm -hmm. uh, you know, should a college degree be a requirement? I'm not saying it has to be a requirement, but I'm certainly saying that it should be incentivized. Maybe you get a few preferential points on the exam if you have a college degree, but there should be some incentive because I'm not saying a college degree guarantees, uh, you know, like it diminishes impulsivity or uh, it guarantees you're going to be a well-behaved, respectful human being by any means. I'm not saying that at all. But what I am saying is it buys you some time, it increases your confidence, it gives you a better understanding, you're more well-rounded. Uh, and, and what we know is a lot of time, humans 
will use force in situations when they don't understand what's happening around them. And they have these averse reactions when they feel cornered, when they feel pressured, when they feel embarrassed, when they feel shamed, when they feel nervous. And so an easy way to help mitigate some of that would be to increase your education and understanding about human behavior. So there, go ahead. I'm sorry, Joe. There, there is a lot of also like, you know, negative connotation to academia now, especially in our profession. So I, I, I know that's going to be a tough sell for people. And I think that was why the, the corner of the debate that you, we had with uh, one of our, our instructors that we just brought on. Um, but to your point, right, I, I think when he heard you say it in the training, he thought it was like a mandatory thing and there was no other like exception to this. Yeah. You have a few, you're, you're just offering different things. And I do believe that it's, you know, I, I went to graduate school with this one, this, this one uh, girl, a woman, uh, fantastic person. But I remember her, her views as she came into from undergrad to grad. And we met, you know, at the very beginning of grad school and just her views in her discussions in class and, 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 and you know, the stuff she'd write. And she, she was, you could tell that she was fed information from professors that also don't know anything about the profession, uh, truly. But then she decided that she wanted to see for herself and became an officer. And she has completely done, uh, you know, uh, a complete change. But to your point, Joe, I, I do believe that what I witnessed from her while in school is her ability to work hard, her ability to sacrifice, right? When everyone else her age was like partying and doing all the things like she was looking into furthering knowledge and, and you know, she did mature. So I, I do think there's value in that. I just don't know if it's going to be consistent across the board uh, for all people, uh, which is, is tough, right? And I think you also mentioned, I like, I like what you say this, you often say that and or work in a social world or uh, a social uh, services, social services uh, area, sorry, uh, social services area or in some job where you're dealing with people in the world as it is. You and I see it all the time, right? We're in different places in the country and we'll do the adverse childhood experiences uh, score or you give it to the, the assessment to the officers. And some of them have had no childhood trauma, yet they are policing and interacting with people with tons of it right. all across. Yep. And you make the point, right? How, you ask them, those of you with the one or zero, how many of you could effectively connect with anybody that suffered like an eight or nine like you and I have? And they, they own it, right? You can't. And well, not to say they can't, but it, they're going to have a, a lot more challenge. And you'll act when they leave the course, they're like, man, I never look at the world this way. You know, I've been looking at completely wrong. You expect everyone to do right and wrong and to like be black and white when you have no concept or can fathom what their life looks like. So I believe working in a social services field would give that perspective even to those that didn't. I have the same level. Yeah. And that, and that was, again, an alternative option that I thought about where uh, maybe because school isn't a reality because of financial issues. I mean, again, it's not like it's cheap to go to university and get a degree here. So I, I get the hardships that come with that. But an alternative could be working in social services for two to three years. And, and what I say is so that you can learn to develop compassion for people before you're given a gun belt. Like that's it. And because I think with great power comes great responsibility. And at a way too young of an age, while we are still developing and impulsive, we're given incredible power and authority 
while we're still impulsive while we, and also there's an incredible amount of fear that is like pushed into us about the dangers of this job and how scary and how likely it is that one day we're going to be ambushed and shot and killed and so a lot of cops are just walking around terrified, uh, wondering about who's going to kill them that day. And, and, and it makes it very hard to have a community policing mindset or a community or relationship-based policing um, when you're always wondering or thinking about someone's wanting to kill you. And, and one of the things too, Jesse, on that same point, because now we're talking about developing life experiences, maybe having some education, slowing down a little bit before you join the profession. Uh, and I want to rehash that point you said, because some people might've missed it. Yes, there was a human being that is 18 years old being trained in a police academy right now. Like to me, that is problematic. Some people might not agree with that uh, and they think it's fine. I think it's problematic, but let's imagine too, again, we're reimagining everything here uh, and I'm all about challenging what is right to get better or possibly create a better future. What if we looked at the profession of policing for more than we actually think it is? And we have to really kind of go deep here and allow ourselves to open up to this, but there, there aren't a whole lot of people that actually fully understand the dynamics of the day in and day out job of being a police officer. It's not cops. It's not live PD. It's not the first 48. It's not entertainment based. Um, there is a wildly uh, divergent response to calls throughout every given day. And so I thought too, well, you get what you pay for. And so imagine if the starting salary for police officers, 2023, all these changes are coming into effect. Starting salary for brand new police officer, $100,000. There are people that heard that and probably just spit out their coffee or choked or maybe pulled off to the shoulder and put their hazards on, um, especially if they're not in the or profession. Our, or delete our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or delete it. But no, think about this. With great power comes great responsibility. We are in a zero mistake profession in policing. Like You're not allowed to make a mistake. If you, do, if you get caught making a mistake, especially if it's a really poor choice, and um, you do something that you cannot take back, that's it. It's game over. So with this should come a greater barrier to entry, should also come compensation. And without calling out specifics, I will say that one of the nearest and dearest police departments to our heart is the Shreveport Police Department. Uh, some incredible men and women on that agency. But when we found we out- Really do. When we found out that like they had not received a pay raise, I think in maybe 10 or 12 years, um, that a, a supervisor with over two decades on that police department was making under 40K, it was disgusting. And yet... Never, the, mind, never mind their crime rate or what they're dealing with, right? They're not exactly yeah. working in a, in a upscale yeah. neighborhood where crime doesn't really happen. No, I saw one report that said that Shreveport's crime rate is like 243% higher than the national average. And, and yet they love their job. They love what they get to do. And they're doing it for, I mean, honestly, what is uh, probably equates to about minimum wage. So, um, but yet we have incredible expectations that they're going to do the right thing 100% of the time. And it's such an unrealistic expectation. And so some people might think like, well, then they shouldn't be in the profession. Um, and again, I'm always, I lead with empathy always. I'm, I'm always like thinking about 
well, it's, it's easy to just have an emotional reaction to anything, but like if we really pause for, uh, and, and allow there to be space for empathy and compassion, and we can start to think about the difficulties of what it must be like in, in any given day to consume the level of trauma that a lot of the officers are, uh, you know, experiencing the, the amount of human suffering that's happening, that they're having a frontline seat to, and then they don't have the skills to actually process that trauma. They are unable to regulate in between calls or in between shifts. And this problem is an exacerbated problem that leads to the ultimate problem in policing, which is something that you talk a lot about as well. Um, and again, which is going to be uh, in, in your TEDx talk that hopefully will happen um, coming up this year. But to know. me, it makes a whole lot of sense as to why the problem is the problem. And it's frustrating because it seems like it's really, really preventable, but we're just not... Um, we haven't. We have yet to be willing to do what's required to actually uh, change course. Yeah, and I, I think there, this would also address a lot of issues: the salary increase. So we know a lot of officers will work several shifts. They work lots of overtime. They're trying to like make ends meet. They're trying. I mean, those that saw the film with you in it saw how much you worked, right? So this would help correct that um, uh, so, somewhat. Uh, but for others, right, all the overtime they work, they're exhausted, uh, just piling on stress. And then also to those that have this negative perspective, anytime something bad happens and they're like, well, that's what they signed up for. That's what they wanted. That's what they get. That's, that's part of the job. And it's like the most sad outcome that you can imagine when, when they're saying that about, right, officer killing the line of duty. It's super upsetting. So if you truly believe that, then I believe that there should be a significant amount of pay associated with that. If that's your belief, because I don't think anybody uh, wants to... Uh, one, that's just a complete fallacy and it's just an ignorant statement. But if you're going to attach those sentiments, you're not going to attach them to 38K a year um, after 20 years. It's just bogus. So I, I agree with you uh, there, Joe, all the way. Let's take care of it. Well, and then it, so it ties into it because this is, this is one too that, um, well, first I want to touch on this. So because we, we talk about the difficulties of the profession and those that are inside know it and some that are outside of it know it. Um, because they've become curious enough to actually find out. Uh, and one of the best ways I've heard this is again, making a paramilitary reference is, you know, Jesse, when we were in the Marine Corps for four years, we did two deployments. Um, we, we, for the most part, I mean, after nine 11, we knew they were coming. We kind of knew the schedule. Uh, we didn't know when we were coming home, but we knew when we were leaving more or less in the average day of a police officer, they're making multiple mini deployments. Uh, anywhere from five to 25, uh, every time their signal is called on the radio, they're making a deployment. They've got to gear up in their mind. They've got to think tactfully. They've got to, uh, be responsible. They have to rely on their knowledge. They have to rely on their training. They're thinking about everything, every call that's from a neighbor disturbance to a domestic violence, to a mental health call, to, a you know, all these calls that we can argue about whether or not police should be involved or not, but arguing about it doesn't change the fact that it is uh, cops are they continuing are. they will be to respond <laughs> to every societal failure uh as as uh chief brown stated or um 
until society gets trained enough to realize that they no longer need to call the police for uh, every problem, we're just not there yet. Uh, and I argue we're probably a solid 10 years away from that being a reality. And so I think we're spinning our wheels and wasting a lot of time trying to create a world that just isn't prepared for the things that are happening. And I know small pockets are doing it and they're having some good success, but uh, the reality is we're just not there yet. That's it. Another thing I think when we're talking about reimagining the policing profession is mandatory therapy for all officers. That is to include the chief and the sheriff that they're not immune. In fact, uh, I'll let Jesse share with you his belief that may or may not be popular about the police administrators, but I think absolutely they need therapy and it should be mandatory. It's not optional. It's not elective. It's not like, well, only if you've been through a critical incident, uh, you had a pretty good week. You didn't see any homicides this week. So you're good. Like, no, no, everyone's going to go. And that's a service that should be provided by the hiring agency, the city or the County. I, I it's funny, you know, how I am looking for government contracts on, on, on Sam, right. I'm, I'm always looking for stuff. And I did see that uh, I think it was the VA police department was putting out contracts to have uh, mental, mandatory mental health checks and care for uh, their police officers. And I, I can't remember if it was recent or it was an old one or it was a new one, but I thought, hey, this is what Joe's talking about. So there are some places that do it. It isn't widespread yet, and it's still a radical idea for many. But what you're talking about, what, what I say is, I, and you know, cops that are out there don't turn off the podcast on me here. I truly believe this wholeheartedly that the toughest job in America right now is that of the police administrator. And let me, let me hold on. Let me finish to be a good police administrator. It's tough. And I argue there's few out there, but think about this, right? Not only do you have to be a person that's like in tune with the community, listening to what, you know, uh, the politicians are saying, especially if you're appointed by them, but also, this is a part that gets left out a lot, is being a leader for your men and women, being a leader for your people and defending them when they need it, being there, answering questions, telling them what's going on, protecting them, and also holding them accountable, right? That's a lot to balance there. But I think this would be a good way to be a good leader. Absolutely doing this would be a great way to show that your people that you care. Um, Cause otherwise all they see is they don't care about us. They only care about them. It, they're always just caring about them. It's just siding with them. And we see all these, you know, political decisions made and, and knee jerk reactions to incidences before investigations are concluded. And it just, uh, it just infuriates police officers across the country. But I imagine for those that work in that agency, it's just heartbreaking. Um, but that's just my perspective. Yeah. And, and Jesse, I promise I'm not trying to like one up you, one up you here on like, well, yeah, well, what I'm going to say is worse, but I want to get your thoughts on this. <laughs> <laughs> so, because you say that, and you've been, you've been saying that for probably the last two years. And, uh, and again, I, I agree with you. Um, and I think that there's several out there that are absolutely trying to do their best for sure. We've met a few, yeah. What do you feel about this? And this isn't going to be popular for the chiefs, but I also believe that if you are a police chief, there's a cap and you cannot be a chief for more than four <laughs> years. Now, 
Why do I say this? Because I, I know why. <laughs> yeah, it's not just because of uh, the dinosaurs that exist, but but yeah. the reality is it's because the dinosaurs that exist. There are some police chiefs that have been chiefs, and it's the pinnacle. Congratulations, good for all of them that have made it. But there's a shelf life, and the world evolves so rapidly. And I think this is where police departments get stuck is you get a chief that gets comfortable uh, in their high chair and they sit back and they're making a lot of decisions. The, the longer they're there, the, the more they're removed from the reality of the profession that is underneath them. And, and I'm not saying they have to leave the profession. I'm just saying like you did four years as a police chief. Congrats. Now you can go back to uh, a captain, an administrator, a deputy chief and like something else. But you're not the boss after four years because there should be that level of turnover. There should be that level of I mean, why do they do it in in politics? Why is it that we have these like appointed time frames where because we want to keep giving opportunities to other people to come in with fresh ideas? It's kind of been the fabric of America. And yet in policing, there's some chiefs that are like, oh, I've been here 15 years. I've been here 25 years as the chief. Like to me, that is ridiculous. And again, I think that they lose a lot of insight and awareness and they just become uh, really puppets uh, to the, the people who have hired them, the people who have controlled them. And it makes it very hard for agencies to continue to progress or evolve when they're serving underneath these dinosaurs. Again, I'm not saying that to leave the career, but after you've reached your pinnacle of chief and you've made whatever changes and policy evaluations and everything, you've left your stamp and your legacy, you get to fall back into ranks. And now you get to fall under the same rule that you've created <laughs> and find out how amazing your policies were or weren't. But I just, I don't know. I think it's another idea that should be considered because the way it is right now, I just, again, I, I don't think what we're doing is working. What you bring up also has a lot of other implications. And for those of you that aren't in policing, I'm going to give you a really good glimpse into what these organizations may be like, especially under the model that Joe's proposed or the, the model that Joe's addressing, I should say. So when individuals stay in power for a long time, there actually does become this uh, political chess game. And what we see, the people that surround this administrator become really good chess players and not necessarily good leaders. And everyone is more concerned with, as in most politicians, when they stay in power for too long, they're all concerned with maintaining power. So what we often find is there's this in and out group. And, you know, what might be better termed as the Mean Girls Club gets set up. There's all this internal politics. And you also see very blatant examples of, uh, I, I, I used to hate saying these things, but these common sayings that are out there, but they're real, right? Uh, different spanks for different ranks. Um, you, you, you'll just see inconsistent Kiss the ring. Punishments. Kiss the ring. Absolutely. It's all about kissing the ring, right? You see inconsistent discipline given, uh, discipline, disciplinary outcomes, uh, inconsistent policy uh, enforcement. It's it just so many inconsistencies. And that is, it is not unnoticed by the rest of the agency or department. And it just creates this toxic, toxic environment. And the longer someone stays in power in this organization, the longer that goes on. Um, which is very, very unfortunate. Not that I'm speaking from experience or anything. I'm just kind of, you know, uh, discussing <laughs> scenarios lying. that are out there. He's lying. It's no. 
it's firsthand experience for sure. You know, what's interesting <laughs> is in our, in our training, in our de-escalation training, we have a little saying of, you know, our goal that we're training is to de-escalate. And then what, Jesse? De-escalate? Navigate. And navigate. That's it. That's our goal is to de-escalate and navigate. And, um, yeah, it, it's interesting in police departments, <laughs> it's a little different saying. And, uh, I'm going to be totally honest with you. I totally forgot what I was just going to say. Cause I was setting up the game too much for Jesse. So that's the beauty oh, of okay. this. Yeah. You were talking <laughs> about something and I was like, Oh, that reminds me of, uh, what you're saying anyway, forgive me for that. Sorry. I'm sure, I'm sure it'll come to you. Yeah. yeah. But, but obviously that, that went off on a deeper topic that I think you and I <laughs> even thought we'd be discussing. Yeah. Um, but maybe this is a good time to, to get into the history of policing. Maybe. So, yeah, I mean, as much as you want to talk about that, like I, I said, Jesse and I were talking before, and I learned quite a bit about the history of policing. And I'll let you touch on that, Jesse. But one of the things, again, talking about the militarization of policing and how this came about, I just I thought it was interesting the way it was defined by scholars as this process whereby civilian police increasingly draw from and pattern themselves around the tenets of militarism and the military model. This process tangibly occurs when a civilian police force adopts the equipment, operational tactics, mindset, and culture of the military. Now, again, this is something that we could argue has happened pretty universally across the uh, One of the things that I talk to Jesse about often is just the mere optics of certain police agencies in this country, like the equipment they have, the way they dress, the low bearing vests, the drop holsters, the like there, it is so intimidating. <laughs> if, if uh, you are just a lay person that doesn't have great um, exposure to that type of environment, and suddenly you're having this like random emergency or crisis or disturbance, and then that shows up to your house, it's scary as hell. And, uh, and again, one of the things that's important to note is that the proponents of military, uh, I'm sorry, of police militarization typically would argue in the past that the rise of gangs and cartels was the result in the use of more sophisticated and deadly weapons by criminals necessitating more heavily armed officers. So that was the argument, but all research shows that gang membership and activity has increased over the decades, that is for sure, it has increased. The evidence does not support the assertion that they're increasing with more dangerous weapons or that uh, they're being used during criminal activity. So this was, I think, just some convenient um, thing that was formed. To, to oh, And, and then uh, this is an interesting survey, too, from 2016 that said a majority of Americans, and I don't know what the sample was, but... A majority of Americans stated they believe the use of military equipment by police has gone too far. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I think it's obvious to, to know that people are not super supportive of it. Um, and it's, been, it's not new. It's been around for decades that this has been happening, uh, this whole military surplus and the loopholes that they're able to acquire the, the equipment uh, without having to pay much for it or without the oversight of how it's going to be utilized. It's, uh, it's pretty unfortunate. Yeah, absolutely. And and then, of course, you're going to have, you know, the officer that's been in a active shooter event or somebody that responded to, you know, these just these rare incidences where there is, you know, I mean, anybody that, that saw Las Vegas uh, would have a different response to that. Right. But I, I think in any social science, we always go to what is the, the likelihood or what's the probability, like what's most likely to happen. And 
you know, where, where do, how is money being spent is probably the, the better thing. So a lot of people are like, let's take this away from them. But what about just reallocation? And, and you and I experienced this, right? Like whenever we started this business, we had to be very, we had to be very uh, creative in how to get revenue streams because cops don't make a lot of money. And even the ones that don't will only pay for training that they define as sexy. And we go to police officers, we offer what we offer, and they're like, oh, we don't got money for that, sorry. But they do have money for, you know, uh, Embrat or freaking Bearcat or whatever you want to, you know, <laughs> the, the cool stuff they got money for. Uh, I remember when, you know, we were, I remember a discussion happening where like, hey, you know, we just, uh, we just bought another, uh, you know, host negotiations truck and it's, you know, this much money. And I'm like, wow, what's wrong with the old one? I'm like, oh, no, no, we just bought a new one. Um, so like police agencies, I think, right. So police yeah. agencies, how they spend money matters. So just some consideration and going back to the basics of what you always say, right? How, how much time are spent shooting a firearm opposed to learning how to talk to people, learning how to speak to somebody that's in a crisis. These things matter. We're not saying take them away or even do less of them, right? It goes back to the, the mantra that, that we say in our trainings, especially X factor is, you can be both. Mm-hmm. You can absolutely be both, right? In my truck, I can have, you know, the baddest freaking, you know, Daniel Defense, you know, long gun with the best optics and lighting system. And it's the prettiest, sexiest thing um, you could ever imagine. And I'm very good with it. And I got all the gear that I can put on me. I got the my, my armor and all my magazines that, you know, are perfectly fit uh, in there. But also, also, you know, I, I have a therapist. I also can speak to somebody and show compassion and empathy. I can also recognize when, uh, you know, I need to take a break. It, it, these things aren't mutually exclusive. And for too long, just polarization has infected everything. You hear me say this all the time. So everything has to be polarized and i don't think that's the case at all you can be both you can be the badass and you can also have a compassionate heart yeah this article i was reading jesse called the history of policing in america by dr gary potter uh one of the things he ended it with well and it goes through the whole history which again i found super um insightful but for me it was i really learned a lot but he ends it with the role of police in the United States has been defined by economics and politics, not crime or crime control. As we look to the 21st century, it now appears likely that a new emphasis on science and technology, particularly related to citizen surveillance, a new wave of militarization reflected in the spread of SWAT teams, other paramilitary squads, and a new emphasis on community pacification through community policing are all destined to replay the failures of history as the policies of the future. And again, to me, that's why like, we're wanting to just have these conversations. Uh, and we also are first to admit that we don't have a huge following. Um, this isn't going to spark up any like 
controversy that's going around for other podcasts because we don't have 10 million listeners a day. I mean, I think, I think we have a total of like 150 listeners, but for the 150 that do listen, I, we never know who you are and we never know who you know and who you're going to share it with. And our audience really is just human beings that are curious about how they can maximize their human experience. That's it. How can we do things better? And obviously because of our, uh, our past, both in the military and in law enforcement, that's uh, and mental health. That's kind of where Jesse and I dance around quite a bit is military and police and mental health uh, is kind of our jam. And so that's a lot of what our topics of discussion are around. Uh, but we appreciate anyone that does take the time to listen into us. But um, Jesse, what do you got for closing, man? Or do you want to talk about anything else? No, I, I think uh, why are we having this discussion? It's probably the best way to and then like why why to end it hell yeah we do things backwards partially because i run things mostly and so it's always a little <laughs> bit messed up but yeah thanks well, Jess. Why, why do these questions matter why do they matter why why even recommend these changes because i think no matter who's listening there's going to be a spectrum of beliefs whether they support you wholeheartedly that it don't they support some of it and other people are going to be like there's well, this is off the wall, right? There's a whole spectrum of people that listen to us. But I love that we have this relationship with our listeners that no matter what we say, I, I think they respect where we're coming from with it, which is one of the things that makes us unique, our organization unique. Um, and one of the benefits of our, uh, one of the reasons for our success anyway. So I think that's why we should hit why. Yeah. And so I guess just in closing, um, again, one of the things we try and do always is, and I'm going to kind of leave this to you all, but really allow yourself to challenge your current way of thinking. Um, maybe just recognize that maybe we've become as good as we can based on who and how we are. What we also know is change is evident. And one of the best things I heard about change is that, uh, you know, everyone complains about the way things are and they hate change. And so it's like, it's very difficult to, to please people. And so, you know, we encourage healthy, emotionally intelligent conversations around these topics, because what we know is no good is going to come from emotionally charged behavior. So anyway, I really appreciate y'all tuning in to us. Uh, we look forward to connecting with you, reach out to us, connect with us, and we will, catch you on the next episode until then next time i'm sorry until next time my friends there we go until next time my friends i'm joe i'm jesse and we are truly mental be well everyone